0: Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Busy show today, a couple of things we want to touch on. The Independent has a a series on immigration we wanted to have a a quick mention of. Nothing in it is untrue, Michael, but I have a feeling people might walk away from it uh, with a bit of a, should we say, misleading sense of what exactly is going on. We have some work, or we have a little bit of movement on the referendum, which is apparently coming down the tracks at us, although I don't believe the bill formally calling it has been passed yet. And we have a series of polls out on immigration and uh, how people feel about how the government is doing with that. But to start with, just to get into something nice and quick, I wanted to give people a little bit of, uh, a little tidbit of data that just turned up, uh, thanks to RTE. So we were talking last week about the Dutch study on the actual cost of immigration, which immigrants were positive uh, financially to the state, which were negative. Now we talked about some of the limitations on that, but also that the figures in it seemed deeply worrying and basically as if Europe in attempting to deal with the pension issue had now created a massive secondary uh, financial issue. We also talked about how those figures pretty much could not be collated for Ireland because we just don't collect that kind of data, um, at least not to my knowledge. But we did get a little bit of information in an RTE piece that came out recently, which was looking at the um, just the asylum field generally. But it contained a little interesting tidbit at the end of it, Michael. It said that the average cost to house an asylum seeker in a hotel or wherever they're held up is €18,500. Now, we can do a fun little thing here, Michael. We can take Roderick O'Gorman's statement that there will be 15,000 asylum seekers a year moving forward and assume that that figure holds steady, which it won't because as more demand is placed on it, the costs will go up because there will be less supply. But assuming generously that everything would remain the same... That would indicate that we're going to spend, next year, €277 million housing only those asylum seekers which came in that year.
1: Just that year?
0: Just that year. And that's going to happen every year. And then, of course, people who take over a year to go through the process, that cost will build and build and build. And that's not thinking of any of the other state supports or anything like that. That's purely on keeping people off the streets. So, just wanted to start with that, because I don't think that has been reported anywhere. Um, But good show on RTE for actually figuring out what the cost of accommodation is per person. Anyway, on the the topic of the referendum, I think it's fair to say the government are taking a bit of a beating on the referendum, whether that's from the Free Legal Advice Centre, FLAC... ...saying that they have concerns about it and they want uh, the wording changes... ...whether it's Michael McDowell pointing out that this could have profound legal uh, impacts... ...that no one seems to be quite clear what shape those impacts will actually take... ...and doing so in, I believe, the Irish Times, which I'm sure the government loved... ...but my my personal favourite has not been the pieces published against the referendums... ...although I believe they are ultimately correct... My favourite part of watching this has been seeing the people who support the referendum attempt to explain in a cogent fashion what the purpose of this referendum is.
1: Well, you're referring by any chance to the very fine piece of work done by the National, National Women's Council of Ireland, which appeared, what was it, three days after Roderick said that those who did not support it, who were progressive, would have to explain themselves.
0: Yes, they they have been doing a, a round of, you know, rousing support for uh, for the referendum. But they have taken a position, Michael, which I think is interesting, uh, bold, avant-garde even, perhaps. <laughs> well, which is not something you usually see in the approach to constitutional law. No, I don't know if you've ever had the pleasure of going
1: to a Brecht weekend festival. And it it kind of reminded me of that in, well, other than the fact that it's painful and boring, but Brecht had this notion and people like Fintan O'Toole who are into that kind of thing, uh, th- believe that all theatre should be political. That theater, the, the purpose of theatre is political, it's revolutionary, it's subversive, and that theatre should be about changing. But po- it, it, this seems to be the reverse of that, that not that theatre should be political, but, but politics should be theatre. And while that has an interesting and certainly attractive quality to it, I, I'm not sure if you really want to do that with the Constitution, that, that basically you're going to say, well, what was the line? We think that changing the Constitution like this could be a really useful kicking off point to start for a conversation. We want to, why do we have, everything is always about having a conversation. It really, these postmodern types, they really believe that language does actually change reality in this way. So therefore, the way to change reality is to talk about it. We're going to have a conversation, Gary. I don't know if that's the best reason to change a constitution or, in fact, to put in something new into a constitution, particularly when nobody really knows what it means.
0: Yes, I, I believe the exact wording was the referendum on March 8th is an opportunity to spark a conversation on care for everyone. Yeah, both yes, yes, and open the door to supporting care in society. Yes, yes, because there are two referendums, not because they misspoke. <laughs> and I've, I, you know, traditionally, Michael, the referendum and the you know, potentially profound changes to the constitution, which is, again, the document that underlines all Irish legal positioning and would therefore traditionally have been seen as at least moderately important. Yeah, The traditional approach was, that changing the referendum, or the constitution happened after the conversation. I've never heard anyone say, well, we've got to change the constitution in order to allow the conversation to happen. Yeah, it's
1: true, true. We, it tends to be on the foot of that. We've decided that we want to go in a particular direction and in order to ensure that we're going to go in that direction, that we're going to put this into the constitution or we're going to move away from a previous position Because we've decided we've changed our minds, we don't want to do that anymore, and we're going to do this. Rather than go, well, let's see where we want to go. Let's let's try and find out where we want to go.
0: I mean, I can certainly see the appeal of it, Michael, because, you know, rather than going through the process of trying to convince people of something and then having them vote, have them vote first, (laughs) and then, you know, afterwards, well, what are they going to do? Hold another referendum to undo it if you fail to convince them?
1: (laughs) You know those crosswords, I, I don't know if you've ever done, I never did them because they are far too difficult. My mother used to do them, where it's just, it's a series of square, the, the blanks, but you don't have clues. And you have to work out the clues. It's a bit like that. It's a blank crossword. We vote for the crossword, we get the crossword, and then we fill it in afterwards. <laughs> I, I, I'm a bit uncomfortable with that.
0: I, must say, I, I, find, I, I really enjoy the fact that the National Women's Council of Ireland have become the front for this because you're starting to get these arguments that these these elements of the constitution need to be changed because they're holding women back and that you know they, they force the state to or they force the state to bring in laws that limited the progression of women which has I think two interesting points come from that the first is well if the constitution meant that the state had no choice but to bring in these uh, these elements like the marriage ban and things like that what is the mechanism by which those laws were removed but the constitutional clause was left in? Mm. Because usually, Michael, it's quite difficult to do that because constitutional clauses and laws, they tend to support them fairly solidly. Some would say that they might even place you know, obligations on the state that the state could not get around and therefore couldn't remove the laws for.
1: You said that's the, 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 the fundamental problem is for, they, have, they have set up a position... Which absolutely demands a question. So they're saying we have to have this in order to allow for the position of women to progress within society, because women have been stymied or women are being stymied or being held back. Any any reasonable person going to say, well, well, how 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 is that happening? In what in what way? I I, I saw one of those you know, those things where they do it every so often. I don't know it was something to do with the UN or somebody had done it. A list of all the countries in the world, and uh, regarding the legal position, the legal rights of women within in different in different uh, nations, and they've scored from one, which were the best boys, all the way down to uh, wherever. I think I, the point they were actually making was because there's going to apparently be some conference in Qatar, and Qatar scores rather low in women's rights. But lo and behold, Ireland is number one. Along with a number of other nations, because women score a hundred percent according to this particular body on the parity in the law, so it's very hard to see when you say, "Well, women are being stymied." So how? Now there was an article in the in the Independent, and I can't remember who it was. It's in the last couple of days that you probably saw it yourself, Gary, Where the uh, the journalist said either when they said that women are being, they're they talking about the fact that they that the the, the article it's it's some that not in some sense but actually in fact said that women's place was in the home that and it limited the the economic and the social political role of women in this way. When you say that, it was you're either telling a lie or displaying a level of illiteracy which is concerning. But either or it's not the basis on which you should advance your position on uh, changing the constitution or hold, or voting in the referendum. Now, he, he framed it in the sense of the, the choice, because obviously you don't want to say somebody's lying because that could be problematic. But, you know, it's unparliamentary at the very least. But it does seem to boil down to that. It, it, have you heard one single decent, coherent answer to the question, well, in what way today are Irish women being stymied or, other than some kind of symbolic, theatrical, poetic way?
0: No, but that has been the highlight of this process for me so far. It's as if they conceived of a referendum, said this is symbolically important, convinced themselves that was true, but at no point thought, can we explain that to a normal person in a way that makes sense? So on the, the other point I have quite enjoyed about the NWCI coming to the forefront of this is that we've seen the CEO of the NWCI come out and say that, you know, these clauses forced the government to keep people, uh, keep women away from work. While she is a woman who is working nearly entirely because the state pays her organization money. Yes. Which is, it's kind of a hard, like it's a, it's a hard one, you know, a hard square to circle. <laughs> You're sort of a walking rebuttal to your own point. Yeah. It actually has been quite glorious to watch just this sort of lofty rhetoric, followed by someone asking a basic question, such as, why should we do this? And just this stuttering sort of, do you hate women if you, maybe you hate women if you don't. Does that, does that convince you?
1: <laughs> I think really what happened here, and this is purely my own little speculation is, that since the 1980s and Gareth Fitzgerald and he had launched what he called the Constitutional Crusade, which was not enormously successful at the beginning. Uh, the oh, first, it was
0: crusade, Michael.
1: Yeah, it was crusade. The, although actually, the crusades tend to be more successful at the beginning than they were at the end. But anyway, he started and he, uh, the first divorce referendum uh, failed. Uh, the Eighth Amendment was inserted into the constitution and so on but this was the beginning and then the pds got in on this if you're you won't remember because you're too young but you'll know probably that part of the pd's package when they came on was not just the economics of the stuff where they were they were influenced by thatcher and reagan and friedman and all of that stuff and the reaction to the keynesian stagnation of the 70s and the 80s they they adopted the, 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 the new economics. But the, part of it was also that they were a new secular right, voice of the centre-right. So they wanted to get God out of the constitution. That was one of the big things with the PDs. Now, that disappeared fairly quickly because nobody in the late 80s, early 90s, was that excited about it, except you know a few, a few people on the left and then a, and a few kind of academic-y types. But it wasn't a big thing. But as society has changed, things have we have we have got we've motored along, and we've seen a lot of legislative change. We've seen constitutional change, and it's all gone pretty well in one direction, fine. And I think basically the, the, so it, it was a classic a classic kind of fine Gael thing, which Finnegall didn't used to do, where they sat down in a room and said, "Lads, we need something, something that people will." get on side with something sexy, something progressive, something forward, you know, attacking the old dev constitution, attacking the old entrenched powers of the Catholic thinking, blah, blah. What do we do? And this particular article, Once Upon a Time, had been something of a, an object of hate and derision from quite a few you know, the feminist uh, advocates groups on the left and whatever. So why don't we get rid of that? That would work. The problem is that, weirdly, as society has become more liberal and more progressive, and the power of the church has declined, and the, that sort of hegemonic position of the Conservative in Ireland has disappeared, this article has become far less symbolically important, because that's all it ever really was, was symbolically important. Now, we say all of it. We've said before there are a couple of legal issues around it that uh, most people would regard as being positive that have have come have come out of it. But generally speaking, it's been it's perceived. So the symbolic importance. Maybe ten years ago, this would have would have would have had a, a better chance. Now we're you're you're actually seeing women both on on shall we say the centre left and the centre right saying hold on. Well, it is simply a fact that women do disproportionately contribute to the creation of the the home and to the management of the family and all of that. And the state should recognise that. And rather than take it out, maybe the state should do something about the problems that women have and the problems that families have. And maybe we should have... We should be looking at issues around, say, the funding of childcare and the options that ch- that families have regarding the the care of children and how women reintegrate themselves into the workforce, or how women who choose not to reintegrate themselves into the workforce for a period of time, how they should be supported. I think that they wanted something that they they thought would just be a slam dunk, something easy, something that would generate good headlines in the paper, something which would feel warm and fuzzy and progressive. But they didn't really think about it. And the classic Fine Gael thing that they've done for the last 20 years, they thought, oh, this will get us good headlines for the, for the first day. And they didn't think, okay, well, what will happen on day three? When people actually start to ask questions, serious questions, well, why are you doing this? What are the consequences going to be? What does it mean? And now people are actually... <clears throat> that minded people are asking those questions. Well, what does it mean? Why are we doing it? What is the purpose of this? And they don't really have an answer. Because it wasn't really done out of any kind of real urgent sense that this some, this is something which must be done. But rather it was done, like the National Women of it said, basically as an act of theatre. Something that they could be seen to do that would have... No practical costs to them but would be politically useful. It turns out it may not be that politically useful at all. And right now, I don't think, would you put your house, your mortgage on this referendum winning? Because I think there there was a sense when the first couple of days, people just assumed "Ah, it'll go through. It's not a big deal. It's not a small deal. It's just a kind of a nothing, but it'll pass. I don't think that's the sense anymore. And I think there's real concern within Finnegan and Finnegan of all that this thing may fail.
0: And not just fail, but fail. Because remember, when the referendum rolls around, both sides need to be given parity. Yes. And they've put this immediately before the local elections. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> this may actually be just an opportunity for some wily political operators or even just opposition, not obviously not the main opposition figures because they're all broadly on side or it doesn't go far enough, to start taking lumps out of the government on a fairly substantial amount of issues ranging from immigration to the treatment of uh, families. I think one thing about this that is quite interesting, if I recall correctly, Michael, yeah, a couple of years ago, now maybe 10 years ago at this stage, the was it the Nwci the National Women's Council of Ireland came out and said they were terribly disappointed with a survey result, which had looked asked Irish mothers would they prefer to work, or would they prefer to stay at home and raise children?
1: Yeah, I, well, I think that well, if there was also a time frame within that. You know, mm. as well, if we, you know, would you prefer to work or would you prefer to? For the, Say for the first two years or the first four years, there was also an element of whether you'd work, would you prefer to go back to work, but to go back to work part time, rather than to go back to work full time. And then there were also elements in that which was about the nature of the, the type of childcare they would like, which was also problematic. But yeah, it it turns out that most women actually, if they're given the economic choice, would prefer to spend longer at home with their children than they currently do, but they return to work because they're economically forced to do so.
0: Almost like that section of the Constitution reflects some sort of underlying reality about the situation, and that a lot of women actually would quite like not if it was changed, but rather if it was enforced.
1: (laughs) Yes, indeed. And that would be horrific because if the state was actually... That would cost money. Oh, that would cost a lot. A lot of money. And worse again, and we, I mean, there'd been fairly extensive polling on this, that not only would you have to provide childcare uh, supports for, for, for that kind of thing, for say, people wanted to go back to work part-time, but the type of childcare is not the kind of childcare that they want to provide at all. But the state has been pushing this sort of, you know, the the large state, the large creche style thing. Whereas, in fact, the polling is that that's not the kind of childcare that most women want for their children. I mean, by significant margins as well. But yeah, that if the the state was actually called on to vindicate the rights of women not to have to return uh, to the workplace because of economic necessity, which is what... Consistently, large numbers of women say it's what is happening, then the state will be faced with a very hefty bill indeed.
0: Hmm. Hmm. It's almost like, Michael, this might be a little bit out there, that sometimes laws which appear disparate, rather than being discriminatory, reflect legitimate differences between the sexes. In the same way, some might say, Michael, that men are on average more violent than women. And that's why more men end up in prison than women. And not that the law is unfairly biased against men in a general criminal sense. Oh, you're
1: getting into deep and muddy waters there, nagare I'm, I'm not following you into that
0: bog. A sort of biological essentialism that I know you're not up for, Michael. Oh, God, no, no, no. On a, another kind of NGO-related matter, interesting story about the, um, about the Social Democrats. The Independent cover this. Sinead Gibney, who is the um, is the chief commissioner of the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission, has announced she's going to run for the Social Democrats in the European elections. Now, she's previously run for them in the local elections, and I think she was also in um, in the general election in Dunleary. But the interesting thing, Michael, is that there's two things here. The IHRC is meant to be apolitical. It in fact brought a case against the state, according to the Independent, the first time the body has ever actually sued the state for human rights breaches last month. But one would have to assume, Michael, if you're going to publicly declare you're running at a European level for a political party, you've been talking to them for a couple of months, most likely, if not longer, because you like, there's There's quite a lot that goes into actually being selected to run for Europe because it's quite an expensive process and there's a lot that needs to be done. So that raises the immediate question of when the IHREC launched this high court case against the government. Now, the court case is over the failure to provide accommodation for asylum seekers, something that might be quite popular, Michael, with Social Democrat uh, voters and activists was she talking to the Social Democrats already, or did she know that she was going to run for Europe before she, you know, before this uh, case went forward? Because that's just a an interesting little question about whether or not you know the one of the top people at a very large NGO knew that it might you know, possibly might be to their political advantage, Michael, where such a case brought.
1: I am sure that the woman in question has very effective Chinese walls inside her head.
0: Oh, absolutely. And I think you can see that, Michael, in what's happening now, uh, because she's not going to leave her position until March 15th. So the Chinese walls are so powerful that even after publicly declaring that she will be a candidate, she's able to maintain such a separation that there can be no idea that perhaps there's some sort of grotesquely large conflict of interest there i i think we can only admire that i know i couldn't do that in my own situation i would just think you know you know fuck it tilt the board a little bit well
1: i suppose what as much as i as i would like to get on board with you on this i i think that in a country the size of ireland the number of people that are going to be involved in an organisation like the Irish Human Rights, what IHREC, is it? Anyway, whatever. The IHRDC, yeah. You know. uh, you're going to be political. Now, once upon a time, that that meant that meant you're going to be a member. You're going to be a supporter, probably uh, the Labour Party of Fine Gael, The odd time, depending on what, maybe if fall. I. What are you going to do? it we, we we are as a, as a state historic we have actually encouraged people outside of very specific things to become involved in politics and to to run and we to run for uh, for elected office in fact we have set up situations where to, to facilitate people to allow to, to to run for office um so what are you going to do i i think you could reasonably say one of the problems here is not so much that this individual is political, but rather, if we were able to take a survey, Gary, of all of the people who occupied positions like this person uh, as heads or in leadership positions with NGOs that were being funded by the state and ask them what their political affiliation was, that I think we all have a sense we can't know for certain until the research is done, but we all have a sense that we would produce a result which was not reflective of the diversity of political opinion within the state, and that we would be looking at a massively lopsided progressive presence within the NGO leadership cadre, and that's worth looking at and addressing and considering, or whatever you want it, whatever in the words of the, the Williams Council, having a conversation about. But I, I don't know what you can do about something like this. I mean, you either say to people, "What well, may, and maybe it, it would be reasonable. Maybe it would be reasonable to say, lads, if you're going to take a job like this, you can't be involved in party politics. Because no matter how strong your internal moral walls of China are, the fact is, from the outside, it just makes the thing impossible to believe. And we just don't want you to do it. Yeah, I mean, obviously
0: there is a history of involvement in politics across all of these organisations. And you're right, traditionally it would have been, you know, Fianna or Finnegale. But in most of those cases... Oh, Michael, Labour,
1: Michael, Labour, Gary. Labour was very well, good back in the day. Labour, you couldn't, lift a, you couldn't lift a stone in Ireland without finding someone underneath it with getting it from the Labour Party who had a job.
0: This is true, which is part of why it's been so interesting to see Sinn Féin just totally cannibalise them in the unions. Sorry. uh, Very effectively.
1: By the way, just going backwards, very briefly, I think it's interesting that we haven't yet heard any kind of definitive response from Sinn Féin on where they're standing on the referendum. But that's another issue.
0: My understanding is that they are going to meet over the week and come to a decision on it now. That'll be an interesting one to see because Sinn Féin are relatively smart and they're not really attached to anything. So I think they will probably try and figure out how they can stay unattached. Yes. If that can be done without, uh, you know, without actually uh, hurting them. Um, But just an interesting little one that uh, such a thing could happen. Good on the Social Democrats, I suppose. She's got a very high profile, and a higher profile now. But speaking of the NGOs, Michael, not reflecting public opinion, and this is particularly useful because the IHREC is very involved in immigration. There was a very interesting poll in the Irish Daily Mail yep. um, on Saturday, and they asked. There were two questions I thought were particularly interesting. There were, you know, the And one was, how do you assess the government's handling of immigration? And the other one was, how do you assess current levels of immigration? Now, those are interesting because they're not asking about asylum seekers. They're asking about immigration overall. Also interesting in that um, usually when I, I can kind of tell from the structure of the answers to how do you assess the government's handling of immigration, that there were most likely five answers but only four of them actually appear, which I have never seen before. Yeah. Because that indicates to me that no one picked one of those options, which is quite odd. Yeah. So the what they had asked was, you know, how do you assess the government's handling of immigration from uh, extremely per to per to neither positive or negative to positive, and then extremely positive does not appear on the poll, which is... Um, Quite bad if you're the government. Um, 14% of people said they thought the government's handling of immigration, which is again not asylum seeking, although you, you wouldn't be quite sure how people see that internally. 14% said it was public or was positive. 20% said it was per. 32% said it was extremely per. Do you know how they used to do this in in ye olden days of surveying, Michael? Yeah, Where they would differentiate between like no and strong no. Did
1: they did it? Was it was it a number basis? What sort of zero? No, zero no. What point? they would
0: what what they would do is they would have you know like don't care yes no, and then they would have fully capitalized yes with an exclamation mark and <laughs> fully capitalized no with an exclamation mark, and that's how they used to do it. a... Little tidbit for you, oh, but that's so 34% of people say they're neither positive or negative. Yeah, more than twice as many people think the government is doing extremely pearly as they do think as they think they're doing positively. And again, extremely positive, which I'm absolutely sure was going to be an answer because not putting it in would be weirdly biasing. Does not appear at all uh, because. Presumably, no one picked it.
1: Like I, I, know it's very funny. I know, obviously, you you absolutely couldn't or shouldn't do this when the question is framed as it is. But if this was, you know, those, you know, those opinion polls were asked about opinion about support for political parties, and they give you, they will usually give two sets of answers: one with with with, with the don't knows, and then they'll give one with the don't knows stripped out. And when you strip out the don't, then it gives the percentage support with excluding the don't knows. <laughs> Obviously, you shouldn't do this. But I was just thinking, if you were to it's consider... It's commonly done. It only is, it is. But I, in a poll like this, you wouldn't do it. Be- but I thought if you did, if you considered neither positive nor negative as don't knows, <laughs> this would not be a good result for the government. Because with 14% positive and 30% and what fifty two percent neither pos- either poor or extremely poor, You're, that number goes way up, and it, it would really look really, really look horrible again.
0: I think if you work it out that way, extremely poor becomes something like forty eight point five percent. This polled. <laughs> <laughs> which again, given that the government through Neil Richmond has opened up an immigration front in the upcoming referendum, which again comes immediately before the local elections. Well, not immediately, it's a couple of months, but close enough to make an impact. That would not have been what I would have advised them to do had I been advising them. You know, you kind of want to go, Michael, maybe before a a massively important election, and local elections are massively important in Ireland for many reasons, but one very important one is because councillors are incredibly important to getting TDs elected. Uh, effective councillors, is, you know, you want to put your best foot forward. You don't want to remind people why they hate you (laughs) and really, really hate you.
1: I have no no clue why anybody in government would want to start that discussion in the context of the local elections. I, I just, I have sat down and I have thought and thought, and I have absolutely no light on that one. It seems to me to be baffling.
0: It's an interesting thought process because you go, people are incredibly pissed off about asylum seekers. I would assume primarily because they feel the system has been taken advantage of and that a lot of those people are not legitimate asylum seekers. So what we're going to do is we're going to put in place a constitutional referendum and then tell people that this would make it easier for asylum seekers to bring in people through family reunification who are in their broader family and therefore probably have no reason to be in the country other than family reunification, thereby making the system even more prone to fraudulent behavior. That's a very interesting political <laughs> positioning. It is, but it's
1: also, it, I, I felt it was a double whammy because it first of all, it, it said, well, that the great thing about your relationships rather than family is that it, you, you know, it, it will it make it easier for people to, to bring people in uh, that are important to them. But it also it drew attention to that phrase durable relationships, even more than perhaps you would want it. And forced people to say, Well,
0: what does that mean? Yeah, I mean, Michael, we say more than you would want it, but I'm just gonna put this out there. Historically, if you have asked or you've asked people to add something to the Constitution, people have generally followed up with And what does that mean? Yeah, what does that mean? Yeah. It's not a surprising (laughs) process.
1: It's not an unreasonable question. If you're going to put something into the Constitution, it's not unreasonable. And was it Rod- Roderick, Roderick's response to this was that the courts will decide. Is that right? Am I yeah, right? It's right? just...
0: <laughs> no, yeah, so, as we have pointed it, it, out before, Roderick is an academic lawyer. Yeah, but again, it's, it's, a re- it's exactly the National Women's Council of Ireland. We have to do this so the conversation can start. It's, we've got to amend the Constitution so the courts can figure out what we voted on. You're trying to sell this to people. There what has, is that.
1: There have been occasions where courts across the world—I, I, I think—I think it's happened in Ireland. It certainly happened in the United States and in other places where you have a, a constitution which is like a foundational document which you can only be uh, changed in very specific circumstances. And you, where, where judges have sat and have said, "No, the legislators have to tell me what this means." I can't. I can't decide on this. I don't know what this means. It is not my job to understand. I. It, it is their job to tell me what these words mean. It tells me what this law means. Tells me what tell and tell me what the intent of this is. And I think it would be a reasonable thing for a high court or a supreme court judge to to say, I, I, when when asked what a durable relationship was, to say, I don't know. I have. I cannot look into the soul of the Irish people when they passed this referendum and know what they thought they meant when they said a juror relationship.
0: That that is the problem there. That the, there can be legal definitions of things that mean particular things, but when particularly things that have been put to referendums come before courts globally, courts tend to put a lot of emphasis on what did people think they were voting yes, for. Yes,
1: the, the intent, the intent of the people when they were voting, and. Anyway, we won't go into the history, history of that, but yeah that in, in Irish constitutional law, that certainly is something which is taken into account by the court. if they can if there is evidence available that there was a clear intent on the part of the voting of the of those who voted for whatever amendment it was to the Constitution that that has to be taken into account.
0: so even if there is a legal understanding within government, if that cannot be put to the people, and it cannot be argued on that basis. And it later goes to a court. And the court finds, well, actually, that's not what people thought they were voting on at all. That just seems like you're creating an incredible stick to beat yourself with. But I do, I do have one idea, Michael, about how the government can take this to the next level. Yeah? Just... So, maybe they're thinking about this like golf, Michael. Like, a seasoned golfer playing against a group of children. And they've decided it's too easy... We've got to give ourselves a handicap. So, you know, you, you put these referendums in basically to make it more difficult for you to win because you're, you, know, you need a sense of sporting to it, Michael. And they've just been in government so long that that's all they have left. <laughs> a vague hope that this is. So where I think they should go next, uh, because I don't think they've made it difficult enough for them, is I think in about a month before the local elections, what they should do is they should put a postering campaign but not their politicians this time, Michael, because that would be helpful. What they need to do is find all of those children with spinal bifida that they didn't treat within the timeline that they said they would and who are suffering from horrific deformities of the spine, and just poster the country with those images, images of those children's backs. And maybe something like, we did this. And I think that'll really, like that'll really raise the handicap to where if they win, it will be very impressive. And I think that's what they're going for because otherwise... This would be an incredibly moronic thing to do on nearly every conceivable political level, and I don't think they're that stupid.
1: We went a bit dark there, Gary.
0: Oh no! Who would have seen that one coming?
1: No, it's it, you're saying you're saying about the lack of the lack of a legal a legal definition. Not, unless there is, and I've been poking around to find. It. I I haven't been able to so far uncover what is a, a widely. Li- Understood specific technical legal definition of what a durable relationship is in Irish law. I don't think there is one. If someone out there is aware of one, then please you know send us in the comments. We'll be interested to find out. But and therefore it, it, the, the problem would be in in the in the circumstance and at the moment i think the unlikely circumstance that this was passed and somebody was to say well the intent of the people was and i think i think the, the perfect reason for that, that there would be a multifarious understanding within the voting population of what constituted a durable relationship i don't think that anybody would be able to argue that there was a widely or commonly held understanding of durable relationships it will be curious to see when the referendum commission uh, gets into gear and publishes the the documents. Now, as you say, nothing has been done yet. Uh, the bills haven't been moved or passed. So, the, and their amendments are going to be prepared, and the language may be changed. But if we are looking at something which contains language like durable relationship, it will be
0: up to the, the electoral commission. I am to give some kind of content to that. I did, um, when I was looking at that, because I thought durable relationship has the sound of maybe some sort of something from the EU. And there seemed to be some documentation suggesting that that was the case. But when I looked into it actually this morning, just to make sure that I was right, I found an interesting uh, report on it um, on a website called Decesis, which is, a it, it publishes law reports. Yeah. It does a, a number of things. And the headline by a barrister is the term durable relationship is not defined in EU law on freedom of movement and it relates to a case in which someone was refused a family reunification because the Minister for Justice wasn't satisfied that it was a durable relationship and the High Court granted a judicial review of that decision because durable relationship is not defined anywhere Right. (laughs) so the court can't say if the minister's decision is correct, because durable relationship is is not a defined legal term. Now, that kind of ties into the whole. Maybe we want to know what things mean when we put them into the constitution.
1: But it also ties in. It seems to me to be to the previous point I was making is that but this is the lack of thinking here that this isn't so much about durable relationships. It's more about, well, you know, there are all sorts of different ways of making a family, and there are all sorts of different types of family, and we have to be aware of that. In the modern world, you know, we have to to recognise that there's all sorts of diverse and interesting and beautiful ways that people can come together, and we can't be prescriptive. The problem is... As lovely and true as that may be, that when it comes to the law, legislature, legislation, or constitutional law, you do have at certain at a certain point to be prescriptive. Because otherwise, how the hell do you know what's going to be legal or illegal? You have to you have to draw a line. There has to be a point which you say, well, this is and the thing about marriage family based on marriage is that at least we know what we're talking about. We have a starting point, and sometimes we have an ending point. We have we, we can identify the people that are involved. We have a a, a very very long standing understanding of relationships within that, but and the hierarchies of relationships and, and proximities of relationships. So it, it works from the point of view of the law. So now you're just say, oh well it's too prescriptive, it's too technical. It's, it's, and i think thinking, no, lads, this isn't a Hallmark card for Valentine. This isn't something we're going to put on a, a banner that we're carrying at Pride. It, this is a law, so we need the thing to be clear and to have lines and to be, in fact, prescriptive.
0: I do think it is sort of indicative of something very important, but which we don't like to talk about in the modern world. The government has clearly lost the favour of the fates do you notice that they start to get really unlucky about stuff?
1: <laughs> so, I, I, are you are you saying that the government has lost the mandate of heaven?
0: Yes, I am. I <laughs> okay. And we don't, you know, we don't like to talk about that sort of thing. But you know, um, someone who has has definitely not lost the favor of of the fates, at least so far. Yeah. As it was pointed out to me, is gripped. Because the last time we made a terrible mistake, Michael, and needed something to cover it up, Henry Kissinger died.
1: Was Henry Kissinger dying that big a story?
0: It was more a relation to the joke that Henry Kissinger was just going to outlast us all.
1: Nobel Nobel Peace Prize winner Henry Kissinger, we should say.
0: Well deserved.
1: Well deserved, as the people of Cambodia would say.
0: Well, Michael, the only real peace in this life is the peace of the grave. And on that metric, Henry Kissinger deserved it more than most.
1: (laughs) Right now, not then. He put a lot of people into them. Yes, sorry, I missed your point. Yes, you're quite true. He he brought peace to many, many people in Cambodia. And not just Cambodia, but there you go. Not personally, but through his agency, shall we say.
0: Kissinger is actually a really interesting person to read on. If you're one of those people that believes that there's no such thing as great men and that history is is broadly deterministic and would happen regardless of who was there. Because a, a reading about Kissinger, and it's going to happen more now that he's dead, one of the immediate things that comes to mind is how often Kissinger and the people he was advising did things because they were emotionally involved in it and basically backfilled the reasons later. And like They didn't want to appear weak or they didn't like the people they were dealing with and then found reasons, which is always good to see because it shows you how important humans are. On the, on the immigration thing before we go, Michael, There was, the Independent had a couple of pieces on immigration um, recently, or sorry, their their people have been involved in a couple of pieces on them. You had an explainer in the independent by Catherine Fagan or Feagan uh, yesterday that came out. You also had Hugh O'Connell on drive time. Hugh O'Connell's one was quite interesting because he gave out information that is absolutely correct, but I would argue is deeply misleading. Because he said that the idea that asylum seekers are not fingerprinted or vetted is amongst the biggest myths. You know, people are fingerprinted when they come to the country. Their fingerprints and names are checked against international database, And if there's a record of criminality, that's dealt with differently. The problem there is that, that is ac- when people turn up, they are fingerprinted. But it's important to note that people are, their fingerprints are checked against a database called Eurodac, not the Europol or Interpol databases, the criminal databases. What Eurodac is, it stores the fingerprints of international protection applicants or people who have been determined to cross a border illegally. So what it does is it tells you, has this person applied for asylum in a different country before? Now, it can be used for law enforcement reasons, yeah. But that can only be done in very particular circumstances. They themselves say that it can only be done as a, uh, a last report uh, resource. Now, that is not the same as the Frontex, which is the the border agency for Europe, runs a thing called FADO. Um, actually cannot remember what that stands for, which is basically designed to validate documents and see if they have been falsified. That's not the same thing. We don't know if the... McEntee has not said anything about using such a thing. And it doesn't seem like people are routinely run through databases designed specifically to see if they have criminal history. That would be quite difficult in many cases because countries can be quite slow to share that kind of data, and my understanding is that some of the legal uh, legal treaties about the treatment of of refugees place other limits on that because there's elements uh, questions of trust. So to say this is false, this you know people are fingerprinted, they are fingerprinted, yeah, but. I think presenting it in that way gives the sense that there is a full and detailed check done of this and that doesn't appear to be the case and it's not surprising that it's not the case because we're dealing with such high numbers now I mean Roderick Agorman saying that it would be you know 15,000 a year that we I don't think we have the capability to do that even if we wanted to that was that, so yeah, I just—I don't know if it was you, O'Connell's intent to mislead, but I think it was materially misleading.
1: Yeah, you know, just on the, what we have the capacity to do and what we have the desire to do. I, I, there's a little story which I'm—I'm I'm sure most of the listeners are aware of. Um, now, I'm putting this in the context of. The observation that we, we the the guard now uh, are being helped by uh, well-meaning NGOs are compiling data on non-crime hate incidents, for example, uh, which I think is really important. The fact that these are non-crime hate incidents, but they are keeping keeping track of this kind of thing. That's the guards have time to do that. However. You saw that there were a number of people being trafficked into the Port of Ross Lair in a refrigerated container, Gary.
0: Are these the people who... They were found. They were brought to a facility for processing. Yeah. And then I think eight of them disappeared and the guards said that they were not looking for them because they were not being criminally investigated.
1: guardy <laughs> have stated that... Uh, this is not a matter for Ongardi Shakana, as the people involved were not arrested, detained, or under criminal investigation. Now, Gary, I don't know any of these people. They may be very fine people indeed, and they have just decided to go out because, you know, the weather is good and they wanted to see what the country looked like, and they all they may have had they may not have enjoyed the company of the other people in the detention centre where they were or not just to say, the reception centre where they were. I, I have no knowledge of the, the morale, the morality or the character of the people involved and I wouldn't want to imply that they were anti because they're perfectly nice people. But does it not strike you that people who have entered the country in a manner which you wouldn't describe as legal, have now left the care of the state? And while the guards have time to keep records on non-crime hate incidents, they're not interested these people because they were not arrested to change or under criminal investigation. Well,
0: my thinking on it is, is this: putting aside the fact that it it seems like every arm of the state is working closely together to piss off as many people about immigration as possible. Yeah,
1: it, it's, uh, because they're, I, they're, they're really, they've committed to it, haven't they? They've put the, <laughs> yeah. they've got together and said, "Right, we're going to really annoy you. We really are."
0: But I mean, it's just this, the idea of, yeah, everyone has, has seen the story. It's a very popular story. And then they disappear and you're like, ah, oh, what can you do? The guards say they're concerned about all of these anti-immigration protests. And it, and it kind of goes back to setting things on fire. Maybe one of the most effective ways of dealing with it is efficient criminal policing. Maybe we've really undervalued the impact that that might have. But the way on a more serious note of it, I think there's two options here. Either these are people who illegally entered the country deliberately, in which case they themselves have committed a crime, or they were trafficked into the country unwillingly, in which case they are material witnesses to a very serious crime, which is most likely affecting many other people. So on either of those bases, the guard should be very interested in talking to them
1: they la- yeah absolutely are not. <laughs> your latter point was the one that immediately occurred to me was that there's a very decent chance that these people were trafficked and that if that was the case, well the guards should have a very real and material interest in finding out who was doing the trafficking, who had brought them in and who you know, what did they have any knowledge of contacts in Ireland where were they were they gone Have these we know not We know that this is happening in Ireland because we know it's happening all over the world. The people are trafficked and then be, they effectively become indentured in order to pay off the debt because they, chances are, in many cases, they don't have the cash up front to pay the traffickers. So they come into countries and they end up as working as slaves in, in underground economic activities in the state to which they are. And they, after a period of time, they may or may not get out of that indenture. And managed to get out into, as, shall we say, free people into society. We know that's happening here. And if that, if that was the case, then there's something very serious that has been going on. The guards should be interested. All alternatives. Also, I, and this is a legal point which escapes me. You remember there was a big thing in the States where the Democrats kept on insisting we should, we should not refer to illegal immigrants, but rather they're in the talking about this thing in, in, in the United States that people should not refer to illegal immigrants, but to undocumented people. How is it possible to break the laws regarding entry into the country and not have broken the law?
0: I suppose I don't know enough about this area to give you any sort of clarity on that. I suppose perhaps you could have a situation where if you're trafficked, you come into the country unwillingly and perhaps it's seen that way. I, I don't rightfully know. It would seem on the face of it that one would have to commit a crime entering a country um, illegally.
1: Because any, I, I, anybody who's come through an airport knows there are lots that the whole process of getting in and out of countries, there are, there are many, many rules and regulations that you have to obey. I don't, I, I don't see how it's possible to to, to enter a country in this fashion and not to have broken some of those rules. Just a priori. Just without any other, without, a, maybe, maybe it's not a crime. Maybe these are administrative regulations. Maybe they don't rise to the level of crime or something. I don't know. but It, it, it strikes me as odd. But anyway, we know that these people are out there and the Gardaí are, are it is not a Guardishia a God issue because they were not arrested, detained, or under criminal investigation.
0: I don't see... I mean, that... This is based on something that the guards willingly told the Irish Independent. So, even if you are not interested, and you're not going to follow them up, you would think, in order to avoid looking horrendous, you would not tell people you weren't looking for them, but instead, you know, say something like, well, we can't comment on individual cases as opposed to, no, we're not looking and frankly, we're not interested.
1: You find, you, find, you find some language. You find some language that would give you some kind of arse protection.
0: And Also, Michael, there was an interesting other little tidbit in the independent piece, which noted that at the point they disappeared, none of them had been formally interviewed because none of them spoke English. So if none of them have been formally interviewed wouldn't it seem prudent to find them on the basis that a crime has probably been committed here? Well let me refer that a crime has certainly been committed here, as opposed to well you know, a crime probably was committed, but we couldn't talk to them and they've disappeared now. So who's to tell if there was really any crime here at all?
1: I mean what can you do? I mean in fairness, lads, come on. We're busy. We're really busy. What can you do? I'm sure they'll turn up at a takeaway near you.
0: <laughs> there was actually, uh, on the independent and the, the slightly misleading things they, uh, that was there, there was another comment on the in the article by um, Catherine Fagan. Or Fegan. They were talking about how people come into the country. And they were... Saying you know, well, they're fingerprinted. All of this stuff is done, Uh, but they come into the country by um, uh, registering at various points. And they said that they you know they register with the international protection office, the Gardaí. That's true. They said they go through detailed vetting and interview processes as part of their application. I'd say that's probably not, but that really detailed is yeah, one of those detailed, words really yeah yeah. yeah 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 but here's the thing every person seeking international protection in ireland registers with the state at the port of arrival that's not correct absolutely not and we know this because in 2023 michael up to the figures that we have and they haven't released them fully for the year yet 77 percent of people turned up at the ipo office So, Which is to say that they were not stopped at any port before that. So they didn't come through the airport system. They didn't come through the ports. They got into the country some other way. Maybe through the airport system or the ports, but not going through the official channels. Which I think is is rather an important point. 77% of the people in 2023, up to the, the figures we have, managed to get into the state without being noticed and turned up on Mount Street... To say that they wanted to apply for asylum. Which some people, Michael, might say, how did they get to Mount Street? <laughs> that might be a good thing to know.
1: Sorry, the, the, this, uh, the, 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 the temptation to just say the Lewis is almost impossible to resist there. But anyway.
0: Well, I mean, who are we to judge? It could be a Lewis, could be a taxi. Could be a taxi if they were living in the city center could they could have walked yeah and i mean when we talk then when you talk about detailed vettings you have the amount of people who are turning up with no documents yes and i know that was that was referred to as what was it uh, t- utter or total rubbish by neil well, reardon he, right. he said it was totally then, rubbish And then RTE Primetime did a show showing that, uh, was it, 70%, nearly 70% of everyone who turns up at the airport doesn't have valid identity documents, which raises the question, Michael, of how did they get on the airplane in the first place, to which I think the obvious answer is they had documents at that point.
1: Yeah, and in some unfortunate incident, managed to lose them in between. Yeah, it's just, it's one of those things.
0: Yeah, which... Kind of indicates, Michael, I you know, I don't want to cast aspersions on people. But if you can use a passport or something of that nature to get onto a plane, as you would need to do, because otherwise they wouldn't let you on the plane, and then when you get off the plane, don't have a passport or any sort of identity, something has deliberately happened to those documents in the interim while you've been on the plane. Either they've been destroyed or misplaced or you had someone with you, who took the documents off you. And they would... The first two would seem to indicate something about the trustworthiness of the person you're dealing with, or their perhaps desire to mislead you. And the third would again indicate that that person is being trafficked. So, you know, maybe maybe things we should give a shit about.
1: Amongst The the ever-increasing list of things that we should give a shit about, we don't. Which is, sadly... Sitting beside another list of things we shouldn't give a shit about, but we do. But there you go. Anyway, Gary, I think we'll draw a line under it for that and let the people out into the cold but brilliant and blue skies so they can take their Sunday exercise. We shall be back on Sunday. Uh, uh, until then, I think we shall say goodbye and good week to the peoples.
0: All the best.